So as I was studying this week, um, I came across a psalm that really talks about what Paul's trying to reach the people in, in Rome about. And Psalm 133, and the kind of the title is, is, When Brothers Dwell in Unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So we will be looking at Romans chapter 14 this morning, verses 1 through 12, and Paul's encouragement to the believers in Rome to be unified in Christ. Um, we're going to try to take a look at that so we understand more about Romans 14. But first, we're going to look back and, and look at the areas we've already talked about up till now. We started Romans 1, and we worked through Romans 11. And so, pretty much chapters 1 through 8, if we look at uh, this thing, we'll find out that Paul teaches... A, I'm getting a bit feedback here. I'll move over this way. Paul teaches about the sinful nature of all men in the eyes of God, justification by faith in Jesus Christ, freedom from sin, and victory in Christ. In, in chapters 9 through 11... Romans, we heard that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So then we come up to chapter 12. Beginning in chapter 12, going through chapter 16, Paul now starts to take these fundamental doctrines, these beliefs that we all have as Christians, and start to say, how do we really apply those? Apply them to the government, apply them to other people, apply them to other believers. And he works his way through chapter 12, and you heard Matt read this morning <coughs> from two weeks ago when he gave a sermon on chapter 12, and it says in the beginning of chapter 12, he writes, Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, and do not be conformed to this world. Um, last week, we were looking at chapter 13 in Romans. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. And it says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the, love, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, for the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. Now, it sounds easy, doesn't it, folks? But some of those people out there are just hard to love, aren't they? Particularly me and... You know, I mean, it is, it is something we have to sacrifice ourselves to be able to love each other. Isn't it? But I can't do it without the Lord. Um, <clears throat> so now we come to Romans 14. Let's look at the first verse. And in the first verse it says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, remember that we're talking about believers here. We're not talking about people that are just not believers, we're talking about believers, but the words I want you to see are weak, got them highlighted, welcome him, and opinions. So first of all, let's look at the word weak, or welcome, I'm sorry. So 
Let's take a look at this one. Why is Paul saying to welcome these people in Rome? Because remember Galatians? In Galatians, he talked about the people there. What had happened in Galatia? Well, <coughs> Paul was very angry at the Galatians. Why? Because they were adding things to your salvation. They were saying in order to be a Christian, you had to do what? You had to be circumcised. You had to conform to the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, in order to become a believer, become a Christian. And Paul rebuked them for that. He basically said, who's bewitched you? Who's created this problem that you have, that you're adding things to the gospel? And he even called them, at one point, referring to Peter, really, Judaizer. And that's where we get that word, Judaizer, if you've ever heard that. A Judaizer taught that in order for a Christian to be truly right with God, he must conform to the Mosaic law first. Paul said, no, that's not going to happen. And Paul corrected that false teaching in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, where we say, see him saying, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. So you, what, you know, works, you can do all the works you want. It will not help you. Your faith is what gets you to where you need to be. Now, work is, you know, if I do things on my checklist that I'm faithful and I come to church every week and I do all these volunteer things and I donate money, but I don't have faith, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. So back to the first verse in chapter 14. Let's look at it. Paul said to welcome in verse 1 because he knew all of those described as weak in the faith were believers and lived by what Paul said in Galatians 2.16, that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. So he knew, the reason he said to welcome them, is because he knew what they believed. He knew where their heart was. So what's the problem? Well, we know what the problem was not about. Let's just go there first. The problem was not about salvation, the sovereignty of God, judgment, spiritual growth, and the righteousness of God. It was not about that. So the second word that, that we want to talk about that was highlighted in verse 1 I showed you was it says, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, interchangeable words for opinions could be gray areas, doubtful matters. And we also have opinions. These are issues that are fun, not about fundamental doctrines, but were minor, minor issues. So it's not about all the things in 1 through 11 that we learned. It's really about things that people have differing opinions on that are not fundamental to the faith. So opinions about things like involving diet, in this case, and days. Not major doctrines, just opinions that are threatening to split the church. Paul cites two examples of opinions in a time that we're talking about here, first century Rome. But we're more progressive since then. We've got a lot more opinions don't we? 
So here are some of the issues, opinions in our churches today that we have. You may know of some more uh, version of the Bible. Sometimes that's a big issue, the version of the Bible. Some people say King James 1611 edition is the only one that you should use. Fine. But just keep in mind, the King James 1611 edition is actually a 1769 edition with 75,000 revisions to the 1611 edition. Just so you know, how about working on Sunday? How about participating in sports or other activities on Sunday? Some people say no. Some people say it's fine. Going to the movies, not going to the movies. Wearing makeup, not wearing makeup. Um, how you dress. Some churches require women to wear dresses down to their ankle. When I first came to Corinth Baptist Church, first time I ever came here, I wore a suit. And one of the members came up to me and said, uh, we don't dress like that here at Corinth. <laughs> okay, I learned my lesson, no more suits. I'm okay with that. It's fine, it's not a big deal. Uh, music. Music can be a big deal in a church. What instruments are used in a church? Some people say no pianos. We ourselves have two services, do we not? And one is contemporary, labeled contemporary, and one is traditional at first service. That's okay. You know, my dad would have preferred the first service because that's the music he felt was appropriate in church. Probably would not have come to the second service. I enjoy the second service, but if my dad were alive today, you know what? I go to the first service with him. Praise God. We can get over things, can't we? Um, and then there's tobacco. Tobacco. There was a pastor that was giving a sermon, and he said, before he realized that this is maybe an opinion, tobacco. Now, there's other issues in the Bible that says your body's a temple, things like that. But he was saying, Smoking is wrong. And there was a woman sitting over here. She was about 95 years old. And every time he would say, smoking is wrong, smoking is bad, she would go, amen. And so at the end of the service, he watched her. And as she got up out of her chair, she took a tin out of her purse and took this pinch and put it between her cheek and gum <laughs> and walked out. And he was standing at the door. He said, you know, I couldn't help but notice that you said amen every time I said smoking was a sin. And she said, amen. And he said, well, but I also noticed you took that tin out of your purse and you put a pinch between your cheek and gums. She said, well, burning up good tobacco is a sin. <laughs> so it's all a matter of opinions, is it not? Is it not? So <coughs> what's going on in Rome? Why is Paul writing this letter? Well, we, said we have some evidence in Acts chapter 18, verses 2 and 3, that tells us something's going on. If you read in this verse, you see something interesting. And he found a Jew named Aquila ah, and a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So did you notice it? There's something in there that says the Jews were commanded to leave Rome. Did you see that? What the heck is that all about? Why were they commanded to leave Rome? So first, 
<coughs> let's talk about this. Aquila and Priscilla are people that actually helped Apollos. If you've read about Apollos in the Bible, they helped him get something straight on baptism. Aquila and Priscilla are the people that Paul lived with in Corinth for a year and a half and ministered with him. Aquila and Priscilla are the ones that went to Ephesus with him. These two were probably Christians, Jewish Christians, before Paul ever met him. They probably wouldn't have done business with him had he not been. So Paul's there with them, and Paul hears about what's happening in Rome. He gets firsthand information from them. They were commanded to leave by the Emperor Claudius. Now, sometimes it's helpful to have a little background because some of these disputes that we're going to talk about today rise out of all of this. And have you ever heard the saying, all roads lead to Rome? You ever heard that saying? Okay, so in the first century, the Roman Empire spread a long way, all around the entire Mediterranean Ocean, up into England, where England is today, France, Germany, all those areas, over into Asia, Asia Minor, North Africa. A lot of people were coming into Rome. A lot of Jewish people started settling in Rome. And at the time Paul was in Corinth, with, and Aquila and Priscilla were there, uh, what had just happened was they had been kicked out. Well, there was about a million people in Rome. Think about that. A million people in the first century. 50,000 Jews. And the 50,000 Jews lived kind of in one section of the city. And there had been problems before with the Jewish people in the city. No, the Romans really didn't care. They had God. They had all kinds. More gods, the better. They had statues of gods on the street corners so people could pray. The emperor was a god. The you know, so they didn't care if the Jews were in there, as long as you don't create problems. You know, because it's a very orderly society. You create problems, you're gone. That happened in 19 AD with Tiberius, who happens to be Claudius' uncle. And Tiberius kicked the Jews out in 19 AD, burned up their synagogues, put 4,000 of the youth in the military and sent them to Sardinia. So now Claudius knew it was around during that time, and so he now comes in to be an emperor, emperor after Caligula. You've heard that name, I'm sure, who was his nephew. And he becomes emperor, and the Jews are fine, there's no problem. But all of a sudden, a disruption happens. Now remember, after Pentecost, this is, this is all around 20 years after Christ was crucified. And after Pentecost, a lot of Christians started coming into the Roman Empire. Slaves, a lot of different people, and around 49, 48, 49 A.D., Claudius starts to realize that there's problems brewing in the Jewish community. And they're trying to figure out what it is, and a lot of his people tell him it's this guy named Christos. This guy is, this, this guy is stirring an insurrection in the Jewish community. And the Jews are upset because of this Christos. And so Claudius says, I'm not going to put up with it. Kick him out. So he kicks him out of Rome around 49 A.D. Some people argue, say, well, he didn't really kick him out. He shut down the synagogues. However he did it, Aquila and Priscilla ends up in Corinth. And they said they were kicked out. Um, so what happened then? Well, there, the Christians up until that point were meeting in the synagogues with the, with the Jewish Christians. And the Jews were, 
And the Romans looked at the Christians as kind of a sect of Judaism at that time. And so they were meeting together. But when that event happened, the Jewish Christians left with the Jews because they were all kicked out. And the Gentile Christians, who were the pagans, quote-unquote Greeks and other people that had not been part of the Jewish community, Jewish law, had house churches. Now, let's, let's understand something. They didn't, they didn't have any concerns about meat, really. They didn't have any concerns about the Mosaic laws because they didn't really go by those laws. And so now we have a, a problem brewing because when Claudius dies, the Jewish Christians start coming back in with the other Jews. And they're kind of forced in with the Christians, the Gentile Christians, because uh, the Jews... Their family, now think about it, this is families that have split up over this. They don't want to talk to him anymore because they've accepted Christ as the Messiah, which is, which is, you know what happened to Christ. And they feel the same way in Rome, and they don't want anything to do with him. People have been abandoned by their families. They can't even get kosher meat from a Jewish butcher because they won't serve him. So now a lot of them go to be vegetarians because they can't get the right meat. Remember Daniel, how he wouldn't eat the king's meat? And he decided to go to become a vegetarian to honor God. And so the same thing's going on here. So now these people who are Christians, who are believers, are all meeting together in a house. It's not like being in this church where you can kind of avoid people. You're in a house with people, and all of these differences on the way they, their backgrounds and their beliefs and the eating meat, holy days, what's holy, what's not holy, what should we doing to honor God here, not honoring God? All comes right face to face. There are probably people in this church that you would not want to sit down and eat with. Not because you don't like them, you just don't feel comfortable. Imagine that that's your choice, that you're sitting down and that's your Christian community, and it's starting to blow up. It's starting to create a lot of problems. So around 57 AD, the church, you know, the people, the Jews start coming back in. Uh, you know, and we have this mixture of people. And let's look at the first part of Romans 14, verse 1. As for the weak in faith. And Paul makes a deal of this. Weak and strong. If there's weak, there must be strong, right? And, you know, it used to be that strong was strong, weak was weak. I understood those terms, and it was like, but here it's like somebody came into my store, and I have refrigerators, and I have bread in the store, and they put... $2 on my refrigerator and $500 on my loaf of bread. It switched things around. Strong used to be the ones that didn't do anything. Weak were the ones that did everything. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is those who have an accurate understanding of God and his kingdom and are able to use their Christian freedom without a conflict, a conscience, are called strong. Those who lack clarity and are unsure of how they are supposed to use their freedom in Christ, are weak. Knowledge alone can't determine our use of Christian liberty. Rather, the love of God in Christ must be the guiding factor in how we see to seek to realize the kingdom of God on earth. So there are two areas of concern, food and holidays. We talked about all that. We talked about the differences of opinion, difference of culture, difference of background. We're creating and stirring these things up. It doesn't really matter who's on what side. Eat, don't eat, you know, don't celebrate this holiday, celebrate this holiday, because they're not really talking about the Sabbath, but the, in a way they are, because the Romans work seven days a week, 
So you can see if there was a Sabbath in the middle of that, that would be a problem too, wouldn't it? Uh, so these conflicting opinions result in this. We have the weak judge the freedom of the strong as impiety. Impiety, you know, what does that mean? Well, th these things are synonyms for impiety. Look at that, godlessness, unholiness, sinfulness, sin, vice, transgression, wrongdoing, immorality, unrighteousness, blasphemy, sacrilege. This is the weak. They judge the strong. That's what that meant, impiety. So that's pretty harsh, isn't it? Then you come over to the strong, and you see that the strong <coughs> scoff at the convictions of the weak. That means mock, deride, ridicule, sneer, jeer at, jive, taunt, make fun of, make light of, belittle. I don't know if you've ever been around a bunch of guys that are playing sports, but if somebody, some people are more athletic than others, and unfortunately the person that's not athletic, used to be at my time, you know, the person that was very athletic would tend to look down on when you're young. You know, can't do anything, don't put him out in the field because he won't catch it, he'll miss the ball, he'll let it go through, and other people jumped on that. There are things that we do as human beings that we kind of form these opinions and we start to judge and we start to ridicule people. And that's what it's about. But look at this. Such tensions are creating problems in the church. Paul addresses the issue as follows. Because God is the creator of all things, nothing is unclean in and of itself. Let's look at Matthew chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus says, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. You can read in James about the tongue. Most vicious weapon there is. So the thing that can defile you and me is what comes out, not what goes in. Food and observance of holy days have nothing at all to do with salvation. They are of no spiritual consequence. We are no better off for partaking or abstaining because these things are of no significance to the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, we can detect in some of this stuff that Paul was actually one of the strong believers. He had given up all these laws. He realized what, Christ, what freedom he had in Christ. And we're not talking about going crazy type freedom. We're not talking about license to do anything. We're just about freedom in Christ. That there are certain things Christ had did for us that allows us to have some freedom and have our faith in him, not in all these practices and procedures and things we do on our checklist to get us to heaven. Paul sees the bottom line issue is the spiritual motivation that lie behind the practices of the believers. Both the strong and the weak have done what? Failed in this regard. So if we look at this, the strong, what are they doing? Well, the strong are failing to act out of love and are placing the stumbling blocks before the weak that threaten to destroy them spiritually. And the weak, the weak doubt that God is able to make the strong stand. Why? You do these things? I can't believe you're doing these things. You surely haven't been accepted. You haven't accepted Christ in your life because if you continue to do those things, and we're talking about opinions now. We're talking about doubtful matters. We're not talking about scripturally sound doctrine. <coughs> so both the strong and the weak have usurped 
divine authority by judging one another. In other words, they've taken God's authority and are wielding it around like a sword. I'm judging you for God because God needs me to do that for him. No, that's not the case. Uh, Paul writes at the end of Romans chapter 14, verse 3, for God has welcomed him. And then he goes on to say in 14.4, Who are you to pass judgment on a servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. So if we wish to busy ourselves with passing judgment, let's concentrate upon ourselves, not on our neighbor. You know, there was, a, there was a thing, Paul, of course, was known as Saul before he became Paul. And you remember what he did before that, right? He, wasn't just, he didn't just have opinions about other people. He really persecuted Christians, didn't he? On his way to Damascus with a letter that said, you can take these Christians and bring them back for trial, he has an encounter with Jesus. His life changes. And what happens? Jesus also appears to a man in Damascus who's a Christian, a believer, named Ananias. And Jesus says to Ananias, you know what I want you to do? I want you to go to the straight street in Damascus, and I want you to run into this guy named Saul. And Ananias goes, wait a minute. Is that the Saul that's persecuting all the Christians? And Jesus ignores that, and, and he's saying, don't you know what he's been doing? Don't you know what he is? Don't you know what he stands for? <clears throat> and Jesus says, go, because I'm going to use him as an instrument to spread my gospel. And Ananias goes. He obeys. And the first word he says to Saul, Paul, when he meets him in Damascus is, he calls him brother. Now that's from the heart. That's somebody that's taken God's word that said, I want you to do this for me, taking it to his heart, and it shows her. It's not just a head reaction. It's not him doing anything because, oh, well, okay, if I have to do that. He's reacting in a way that we're seeing that God wants us to react toward each other here. So Paul addresses the tension between the weak and the strong um, on both personal and community levels. You know, it, it, in the Sermon on the Mount, oh, first of all, I talk about believers are not to argue over matters of personal piety. What's piety? You know, you get all these big words. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was instructing people that if a righteous act was done for God alone and was not tarnished by a desire for recognition and applause, it would be rewarded by God. That's genuine piety. That's what we're talking about. So we should be convinced in our own minds and not do anything that conflicts with our consciences. Understand that. But where do we get that from? Our personal convictions about what's permissible need to come from sincere faith. Now, we don't just make it up. We're in the Word. So in our community level, we need to understand that this is about believers now. There is to be, no, there is to be mutual acceptance and tolerance because the conduct of both the strong and the weak comes from genuine devotion to God. So that's where we're at. 
Now, we want to be careful with this tolerance, you know, this whole idea of tolerance. Be careful about that. I won't go any further than that. That could be another whole sermon, but what I guess I could emphasize it with this, with the term that we use a lot, keep the main thing the main thing. You ever heard that? Secondary things second. The, keep the main thing the main thing. So I have a little illustration for you. The London Transit Authority had a lot of complaints coming in. Why? Because they were passing up the people at the bus stops and not picking them up. And so the solution was they put out, they put out a communication to everybody, and it said this. It's impossible for us to maintain our schedule if we're always having to stop and pick up passengers. <laughs> now, do you think clearly this company has lost its focus on why it existed, has it not? And so, as I read in chapter 14, verses 6 through 8, I want you to listen to what Paul says about Roman, the Roman believer's focus. So don't miss this. Just listen. So the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Let's just continue reading down verse 9, 14, 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So the business of our lives as Christians, as believers, is not to please ourselves. It's to please God. That's true Christianity, which makes Christ all in all. So let's just consider for a minute, how do I live my life for God? First of all, love God. You know, love one another. Follow him at the cost of denying your own desires. Hard to do sometimes. To care for the poor and needy. There's a warning, though, not to fall into sin, sinful behaviors like those who don't know God. <clears throat> let's look at what Jesus said about it. He summed it up. Pretty well. Jesus answered, <clears throat> the most important thing is, Hear, o, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with your, all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You know, we have... Jesus' prayer prior to his crucifixion also shed some light on our purpose, referring to believers. He prayed, <clears throat> we look at John 17, verses 22 through 26. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to hit to a certain verse. I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. Now pay attention to this one. This is where I'm going to cut off here. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. The way the people are going to see Jesus is you. They may never come into a church. 
But if they see you, and that's how I ended up in a church, other people's example, other people's witness, not saying words to me, not preaching the Bible to me, not saying anything other than their example. And I wondered, how in the world can they be that way? You know, I don't, I don't get it. Well, now I get it. Now I get it. And I, I want to tell you this very sincerely, that you, <clears throat> you are who Jesus is depending on to find those people and get them close to him. His desire is for a relationship with us. You know, we need to know that. We need to know that that's the desire. So those who wish to live for God must seek him in his word. We must seek guidance of the Holy Spirit to apply the word in our lives. Loving, and you know, living for God means giving up ourselves and desiring God will be above all else. As we draw nearer to God and come to know him more, his desires will more naturally become ours. As we mature, our desires to obey God's commands increases as our love for him increases. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And we go through a lot, a lot of our lives with blinders on a lot of times, with a fog. Sometimes the fog lifts, and we actually see what Jesus is saying to us, what the Word's saying to us, and sometimes it's just there. And we, and we kind of are numb going through our lives. And Jesus is saying, I really want you to not be numb. I want you to understand why you're important to me, what I did for you. It's not about you. It's about God. So Romans 14, verses 10 through 12, is for Christians. It's not for unbelievers. Romans 14, 10 through 12. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every name sh knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Romans 14, 10 through 12, it says this. And we're talking about what's going on in Rome. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. So in summary, Paul's saying here this, that we identify the personal responsibility of every Christian to give account of himself or herself to God. We will not have to give an answer for our fellow Christians or anyone else, but we will have to give an account for our own deeds. So when you get to heaven... <coughs> God's not going to come out with a, with a directory from Corinth Baptist Church and in alphabetical order go down and say, okay, tell me about Bob. How'd he do? Andrew. No, it's going to be about us. We're going to have, to, we're going to have an accounting of our own to give. We won't have to answer for our fellow Christians or anyone else. Yeah. So we must all 
appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, Bema, B-E-M-A, Bema seat, that's the judgment seat of Christ. That's where you're going to receive your rewards or your crowns. But also there's going to be a little discussion go on. It's not the great white throne judgment that you read about in Revelations where this is about you face to face with Christ. So we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things while in the body, whether good or bad. The judgment seat of Christ does not determine salvation. That was determined by Christ's sacrifices on our behalf and our faith in him. A couple of things we might be judged on is how well we obeyed the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Another thing is how well we controlled our tongues. James talks to us about that. You know, God hates certain things. Some of the things he hates are gossip. Sowing the seeds of discord amongst the brethren. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be doing things that God hates. I really would not want to be doing them because there's going to be a judgment, isn't there? Now we say, well, well, that's no big deal. Well, okay. <laughs> I can't say any more than that. It will occur. You'll get your rewards. But, you know, there's verses in the Bible that talk about those rewards that they could be what could happen. They could be burned up. Are the things that you've done. There's a thing that says wood, hay, and stubble. So you lay everything on the foundation of Christ at this seat. And if everything I've done is wood, hay, and stubble, and the fire is put to it, it's going to go up in smoke, isn't it? Um, I might be singed a little bit. So the things I've done or not done are going to be taken. It's going to be looked at. Trust me. In James chapter 1, verse 12, is a good summary of how you should think about the judgment seat of Christ. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Amen. You know, Christ told a woman at the well that the Father was seeking worshipers who would worship in spirit and truth. Worship must be honest and spiritual. The worshiper must put their heart into it and offer to God the best that they have and the best they can do. In Malachi, we, we look at Malachi is talking to the priests there about their sacrifices to the Lord and what was going on. And I think it starts off, it says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering, and he says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer 
those that are lame and sick? Is that not evil? Present that to the governor, to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now you come and entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to you? So what he's saying is this, that apparently these priests, they did sacrifices. And you know how it says in the, in the Mosaic laws that the, you give the unblemished animal, the firstborn, the best of the best of the best are the ones that are supposed to be brought forward. Well, what they were doing was taking the ones that were kind of had mange and flea-ridden and scrawny and said, what difference does it make? Just, I'm throwing something up there, but it's no big deal. And then at the same time, after they gave the, the offers like that, now they come and ask for stuff. Like they come up and pray and ask, hey, help me out here, Lord. I'm having a tough time in my life. After their sacrifices were garbage. I mean, they were not really honoring the Lord in this thing. And I was thinking, wow, this is, you know. But those were priests. That wasn't me. That wasn't, I'm not a priest. Well, I got a surprise for everybody. We're, well, you are. You are. Look at uh, Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's the point? Should the living God be given your leftovers? Should we just be making time in our lives for God? You know, I've got a busy schedule, the Lord. I've got a lot of stuff to do. But the minute that I have a problem, I'm going to come to you, Lord, on my knees and asking you, just pay attention to me. And he's saying, really? And so I think that in our prayers, we really need to put that point into consideration. Am I giving God my leftovers? Am I like those priests taking the, yeah, I'm doing it, but am I doing it with a, a loving heart and a, and a worship in my heart and loving God? Or am I just going through the motions here? Something to think about. But in conclusion, let's look back at what we've read now the second time today, but it's worth it. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And we look at it and we say, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spirit, spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Yeah, that's... Uh, don't need to add anything to that, do we? So God is... God's trying to reach through to us. Like Paul's trying to reach through to these Romans and saying, you know what? The church can be destroyed by us fighting over things that are of no consequence in his world. And he's saying, stop it. You know, love one another. Let those th type of thing go. It doesn't matter what kind of music the other person likes. It doesn't matter what kind, when they eat or when they don't eat. Or, you know, it doesn't matter about some of these things. 
you need to go to the Lord in prayer. You need to be in the Word. You need to find out what, how He's directing you in your life. But the other thing is, I have brothers that feel strongly about certain things. It's not my role to go and beat them over the head. If it's not a big issue, I don't need to be the ones to, to beat them up. And it's saying, welcome people to come into your church. It might be a little bit different. You, there have been people in our churches that didn't look right. There was one example <clears throat> where this girl came in and she had purple hair, had piercings, had tattoos, dressed the same way. And one of the people in the church went up to him, not our church, of course, and said, you dress like a prostitute. Now that girl didn't come back to that church, but she did go to a church down the street and accepted Christ as her Savior. We're, we're, when Christ died for us, he died for us, we were still sinners. He could have looked down on us. He could have said, you know, you guys just don't have it together. He died for us, but we were sinners. We didn't deserve it. And we need to keep that in mind when people... You don't know, for example, Ananias didn't know that, that Saul was a born-again believer, that he accepted Christ. He didn't know that. But he took Christ's word and said, you go to that person. I've accepted him. I've welcomed him in. I want you to do the same. When somebody walks in this door here, that's what they want. The other thing is, if we're in here bickering and fighting over opinions and things, that's going to split the church. And the church is the bride of Christ. The church is his way of reaching people. You are critical to that. You and I, we are critical to that. And I have to go back to Psalm 133 in closing. Psalm 133, verses 1, and I want to look at verse 3 also. But repeating, verse 1 Behold how good and pleasant it is when a brother dwell when brothers dwell in unity. That's brothers and sisters, by the way. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. Now say it like now. Okay, you may know what the dew of Hermon is, but I didn't. I had to go look it up. I had to figure out, okay, what does that mean? What's how is that a uh, reference uh, applicable here so there was a man it was 1857 and he was there and he was talking about this dew of Hermon and essentially what it is is that there's a sea level and there's a mountain that rises 10,000 feet right away just goes right up and because of that the warm air down at the bottom rises and when it gets to the top where the snow-capped peak is it condenses and it comes down as this dew and the guy that was there in 1850s, he said that his tent was wet, his shoes were wet, the inside of the tent was wet, everything he had was wet with his dew, everything. The valley right below this area where this dew came down was the greenest thing ever in the middle of an arid desert. It even had orchids growing in it. And then you have to think, you have to think. Look at that first verse. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Love one another. That love is warm. It goes up to the Lord. And down from the Lord comes His blessing and His love and covers you with His love. 